This is the Anatomy of a Scream Pod Squad Network. Welcome back to Sexy and Surreal, a David Lynch and David Cronenberg podcast. I am Joe Lipset, and I'm joined, as always, by Terry Menard. Hello, Joe, and this is... Boy, is this a much easier movie to get into than um, Eraserhead <laughs> was uh, in terms of first filmography. Although I guess it's technically not Cronenberg's first film, film but like in terms of, I think, what his style would become. Mm-hmm. Yes, this is very emblematic of who Cronenberg would be for about the next uh, 10 to 15 years. So, folks, we are talking about Shivers or the Parasite Murders, depending on who you are, where you live, what time period you're in. And uh, yeah, this is David Cronenberg's first film. If folks haven't seen it, it is about a sexually transmitted disease that takes the form of slugs that makes its way through an isolated island apartment complex. And uh, I guess content warnings, because we do have a lot of sexual assaults and we do have uh, even like some child murder and some other fun stuff like that. So... I feel a bit weird saying content warning because I don't think the movie is that hard to watch. And yet I will confess that I'm also desensitized to David Cronenberg because I've seen a lot of his stuff. Yeah. Well, first of all, I want to say that in addition to those to those fantastic titles, the shooting title for this is just perfect. The or it's called was called Orgy of the Blood Parasites was the original <laughs> shooting title. And what what an evocative title that kind of I think I think that title more than anything else sort of like ties into the exploitation nature of this movie because this movie is very mm-hmm. drive-in exploitation grindhouse type feel to it which surprised me uh and mm-hmm. i think maybe because you know i've seen movies like the sadness this year and all this other stuff so the i am as well i guess is what i'm saying desensitized to what happens in in this movie although it is it is horrifying Yeah, yeah. I mean, when you pull back from what the film is doing, and particularly in the film's final instance, where the infestation is not stopped in any capacity, and you just see this line of people who live in the apartment complex getting into their cars and driving out into the city, and you get that ominous voiceover of, hmm, there's been like a series, an escalating number of violent attacks that seem to be sexual in nature, and then... It's just credits rolling as though it's, you know, an everyday affair. And you're thinking, ooh, there's a certain amount of nihilism here, isn't there? There sure is. And um, I will also say that watching this, as I have viewed a lot of films recently through the lens of COVID, Mm -hmm. the finale where the parasite is out because we couldn't control it. And then we also have that, as you said, the news report that's talking, but even it is trying to downplay Mm-hmm. the rash of sexual assaults that are happening across the city i believe almost to without without saying it the government official that they are parroting says basically fake news is basically what they're saying and so mm-hmm. seeing that in light of <laughs> the hellhole Real that we affairs were, yeah yes that we're pulling ourselves out of very slowly yeah it, it hit it that did definitely hit differently than i think was intended 
Well, it's interesting to me that you said that this was a little bit easier to get into than Eraserhead. And I won't lie. I mean, the very obvious reasons is because this <laughs> film has a more traditional narrative. It's not surreal what you're seeing. I'm not going to say it's what you see on the surface is what is there because there is a lot to this movie. Yeah. But, you know, it's obviously not David Lynch. It's David Cronenberg. But at the same time, one of the things that I do really like about this movie is how it could be confused for a simple exploitation film. You know, it's an orgy of a blood parasites. <laughs> and you could almost leave it at that if you didn't want to do the extra work to dig into it. Right. And I, I think, I, I mean, I have a little bit more knowledge of Cronenberg than I do of Lynch uh, mm -hmm. in terms of his filmography. And I think that's what one thing I appreciate about the movies of Cronenberg that I've seen is that you can you can appreciate it as someone going to I want to go to the movie theater and see some fucking blood parasites like mm -hmm. you can get that and you can have a, a fantastic time being spooked and scared and jumpy and all that kind of stuff. But then there's another layer to it that is underneath that sort of more public facing type story like there's there's a lot more depth to it that can be more interesting to, to dig into. Whereas I feel that uh, at least in case of Eraserhead with, with Lynch, it's just, this is a lot. You're going to have to meet me at my level. Whereas Cronenberg mm -hmm. is saying, I'll meet you at the drive-in level, but then I'm also <laughs> going to include some other stuff in here that is more interesting for those that want to dig a little bit deeper. And so as a first movie for Cronenberg, I appreciated that for sure. Right. Yeah, it, it is interesting, right? Because the nature of this podcast by its very nature means that we're going to be comparing these two Davids. And it's a bit of an artificial construction, right? Like mm. they're both auteurs, they're both, you know, coming to prominence around the same time period. But one is Canadian, one is American, you know, they've had extremely different and divergent careers. It's a bit of an artificial premise that you and I struck upon because we wanted you to have the opportunity to experience a bunch of the films that you were missing in both of their filmographies. And yet, I do find that there's some really interesting conversations to be had, especially in the early parts of their respective careers about the nature of independent filmmaking mm. in the mid to late 70s, right? So... What we're seeing with Lynch looks like a glorified student film writ large with like really strong technical prowess, like a, a huge vision. And with Cronenberg, we're almost seeing the the trickle down effect of things like Roger Corman and oh, yeah. other video nasties. Uh, and just like Cronenberg is obsessed with particularly the influence of American culture on Canada. It's it's part of our you know, inferiority complex, the little brother kind of syndrome mm. that we have with America. But I love the idea that Cronenberg, he frequently takes things from American culture and repurposes them. Like, I love that this movie is set in Montreal, even though when you look at the film, I'm not sure that it's saying anything particularly strong about Montreal, apart from the fact that it is an island that he can use for the narrative construct. Yeah, I was I was curious about that in terms of the if there was any Canadian subtext going on in, in the film that I, I obviously would not have been able to to capture. So that's that's interesting enough as it as it is. I wanted to piggyback on a point that you made because they are both kind of coming to turn coming into their own at the same time in mm -hmm. terms of, of their filmography and in terms of going down their respective paths of their careers. And 
one thing that kind of struck me about about this film, if we're comparing it in terms of um, reception and in terms of like first watch of this versus Eraserhead, Eraserhead is something that you look at and you go with your little cigar, oh, that's art. Or your little pipe, mm-hmm. right? You go, oh, this is art. This is an art right. house film. You look at, at Shivers and it's like, this feels like it was made for the masses on first viewing. If you were to just take it at, at its surface layer, it mm-hmm. is more... I would say pleasing to again to the to kind of the grindhouse crowd, and sure. it also yeah. didn't get positively reviewed. No, <laughs> on initial release. <laughs> uh, so I, I I find that so fascinating that these two movies kind of come out similar times, like within a few years of each other, mm-hmm. and they're people who are very well respected now. And I think the initial response to these films couldn't be more different. Yeah, absolutely. So for folks who maybe don't know about the troubled history of Shiver's reception, in Canada, we have a funding model that supports the arts. So you can apply for funding at the provincial or territorial level, which is the equivalent of a U.S. state. And then there's also federal funding. So this film was funded by the CFTC, which is an early precursor to what we now call Telefilm Canada. And it's basically the major funding body for Canadian films in the country. So um, basically what it means is that the public funds feature films. So unlike something like Hollywood, which is controlled by private finances or like studios making movies here, the vast majority of films that get made in Canada and other Commonwealth countries like the UK. Isn't Australia Australia like, yeah. Yeah, I was going to ask because I think Australia has a as a film mm-hmm. center that pays for a lot of things. Yeah, it, we're very similar, and not just because we all share a monarch, but um, <laughs> yeah. So, so what ends up happening though is that when you make a movie like Shivers, which is a genre film, it's exploitative, <laughs> mm-hmm. it's uh, sexually progressive and confronting. Mm-hmm. People look at it and say, "Well, my fucking tax dollars went to make this <laughs> shitty film." And this was the highest grossing film in Canada in 1975, which is yeah. like, it's not the the defining thing that it would be in the US because back in the 70s, we still didn't really have a robust feature film industry. Like we were making them, but they were sporadic, mm. but they definitely weren't genre. So this movie comes out, it makes money, it's sensational people don't like it because it looks too much like an American film. It's delving into topics that are gross, uncomfortable, rude. And as a result, it was literally debated in our parliament as like, do we want to be making movies like this as Canadians? Which I think is a absolutely hysterical as though politicians have any right to critique which art does and doesn't get made. But also then B, you look at who they're debating literally one of Canada's most celebrated filmmakers of all time. I think that hindsight, of course, is 2020, but I think that is oh, actually sure. hilarious. Mm-hmm. That It's so funny. That the, the most, probably the most well-known outside of Canada director mm-hmm. yeah. had his movie debated in Parliament. I mean, did they, yeah. do you know, what did they decide it was okay that like, or what, what was the decision out of that? Do you, do you know? I I believe that it was kind of like, no, we don't have a responsibility to do this. Um, Like, I think it was somebody tried to sound the alarm as though like, no, we should be making good old Canadian films. Someone think of the children. (laughs) 
more or less, but we have had these debates in the Canadian film industry ever since we started funding these. Like, basically, we have a feature film industry because some enterprising people were like, hey, I'm just making a short, but I'm running a little short on money. Can I just get a little bit more? Can I just get a little bit more? Oops, I made a feature. Shoot. (laughs) But they were often very, like, realist dramas. So it was like, tell me about the problems plaguing farmers. You know, like, what does a Canadian winter look like? Show me their struggle. Show me about what it's like to move from Atlantic Canada and come to the big city and realize, oh, no, I'm not a good fit. And I need to return home and work on the fishing boats. Like, (laughs) and I'm not saying that those are bad. But like, we are so genre resistant, that I'm not surprised people reacted badly to this, because this isn't just genre. This is like, hey, do you want to see people face rape each other? Mm. yeah do you want to see a parasite that looks like a prolapsed anus like Uh uh-huh uh-huh yeah the creature design in this movie is kind of hysterically inept like you can tell that Cronenberg doesn't have the budget to make a mass of these things so they're probably reusing the same one to two Mm -hmm. slugs and they kind of look yeah like a prolapsed anus mixed with a tongue in a slug-like form but it's very rudimentary puppetry it's not entirely convincing when they kind of like attach themselves to people's cheeks or arms yeah and yet there is something hugely compelling about this right like when you see someone advancing on another person and the thing comes out of their mouth or like my favorite is the delivery man who attacks the the mother and her young daughter in the elevator and we don't even see it it's implied violence he just goes Mm -hmm. in and they start screaming and the door closes and then we see that they're like zombified later and yet it is so effective Uh, yeah absolutely and if we're talking about kind of favorite uh prolapsed anus moments in this movie (laughs) uh the moment when gosh i think her name is bets is in the yes the best friend Mm -hmm. she decides to take a bath and I was like, Ooh, oh, boy, I was like, where, where is it coming out? Is it going to come out of the faucet? Is it going to come mm-hmm. out of the uh, the drain? I was like, I was I was like, this is such a, a classic sequence that I think has been used before uh, or used in other films that would come later mm-hmm. in terms of building Nightmare that on Elm of, Street for one on Elm Street Slither for another. Mm-hmm. Oh, Slither is so indebted to this movie. Oh, I absolutely. <laughs> this, the the parasites in this that would eventually also the parasites in the other movie that Slither's indebted to from the 80s, uh, something with the Comet. Night of the, was it Night of, no. Night of the Comet? Yeah. It was Night of the Comet with the, the parasites from, the, from, from outer space and that one. Like, mm-hmm. I, you can see the kind of way that the, the creature in this has, has informed cinema since then. And I, I mean, that's, that's, really, that's really rad. Cronenberg, man. Yeah, yeah. And of course, like, this kind of movie is also indebted to things like The Blob and Mm -hmm. various, like, nuclear-related horrors from, like, the 50s when we were afraid of things like nuclear war. Yeah. And I love that what you'll start to see as we move through Cronenberg's filmography, Terry, is that he has an obsession with bad scientists. Mm. So this movie is less interested in, like how did these worms come about? Like, how does their physiology work? Like, we're not doing science, (laughs) but we do have science figures who are like daddies, for lack of a better term. Like, they are often bad fathers or bad husbands, and they are also delving into things that they have, like, god complexes about, and they're terrible at it. Like, they are fucking failures 
every time. So this movie features not one, but two of them. So we have a protagonist in like our carefree kind of can do um, Roger St. Luke, who runs the medical unit on the island on Starliner Island or whatever. And then we also have Dr. Hobbs, who is kind of the person responsible for it. So his partner is the dude who kills the girl in the very beginning. Right. And they're both so fucking ineffectual at helping anyone at stopping <laughs> anything like, I love that Hobbes shows up, like, we, we watch him dispense information over the phone. We watch him drive to the island. Oh, that's Rolo, actually, right? Oh, sorry. I, Hobbes is the other guy. So mm -hmm. Rolo is the one that we see. Hobbes is the one who dies early on. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, we, we get to see all these scenes thinking he's going to come and save the day because he knows how these right. things operate. He's responsible for all of this. Shows up, literally just gets killed. Just gets killed. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's fantastic. I love I, it. It's also, I was, I was, I was curious to, to hear who you were going to say the protagonist was when you were when you were doing the lead up to it because it's not that simple is it no I made it sound like it was very obvious and it's not because one of the things that surprised me is how much of an ensemble piece this is i love mm -hmm. the, just the everyday scenes of the way that uh cronenberg shot the entire kind of um apartment complex with the different people that are living there and we sort of follow them we're mm -hmm. peeking into their lives and yeah. in a voyeuristic way seeing how they're all operating seeing how all the men are pretty much sleeping with other women and cheating mm -hmm. on people like yep just this kind of microcosm of society in a very small building that is presented as being like upper middle class rich i would say in terms mm -hmm. of being able to afford living here where oh, yes. everything is yeah, provided yeah. to you mm -hmm. so you have this like opulence this big building and inside the people are just as bad as the parasites because they're all kind of fucking each other over and they're mm -hmm. all like doing things being respectable and presentable in public facing but also behind them scenes being deeply broken in different ways yeah and you see that and i honestly i thought at first that we were going to be latched on to nick and mm -hmm. and his wife because yeah. they seem to be the most focus of it and then the camera moves away from them and then we get saint luke and we get all these other like individual people bets and stuff and i'm just it surprised me mm -hmm. how by the end of the movie i was like well i guess saint luke is the protagonist but there really yeah isn't one it's only because he lasts the longest yeah. that you might mm -hmm. default to him being the protagonist. But also, I think this film is very clever at saying, well, why do you think that the white male doctor, why do you default to think of him as a protagonist? And we do that even with Nicholas, right? Like, so this movie opens in a very satirical fashion, right? It's uh, a kind of television promo advertising this luxury apartment complex. Welcome to the world of tomorrow is basically mm -hmm. proclaiming. Yeah. And I guess you could say that that is a little bit Canadian because, of course, in Montreal in the mid to late 70s, we were hosting, oh God, I'm going to get it wrong. I think it's the World's Fair. Mm. So they, they had constructed a man-made island and like outfitted it with like state-of-the-art stuff because they were hosting like this big international event so in that way it is reflective of a kind of like shift to ooh, well you should be living in this private space like you should be living off the island on its own private island and so on <laughs> right 
But I love that it's basically poking fun at, you know, yeah, this is a microcosm. It's got dental, it's got healthcare, it's got tennis courts, it's got a pool, there's green spaces and so on. And then almost immediately, this is contrasted by the very graphic and prolonged murder of a young girl. Yes. The way Cronenberg edited between these sequences like had me kind of rolling because it's mm-hmm. like he you have Merrick, the guy that is in charge of this uh, apartment complex, who is selling this new couple on. We even have you could move in this afternoon. We even have mm-hmm. furnished apartments like this yeah. is like for you. And meanwhile, we're cutting with this lascivious looking man who is mm-hmm. you don't know what he's doing with this woman. No. Uh, Just predatory. That's like the yeah. default. Mm hmm. And I just I love the way it intercut between between the two of them to show again this idea of here is what they're selling you, but here's what's really happening inside. And mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think that that is such a rich visual metaphor for what is happening inside the people who are infected with the parasites sort of rolling around in their stomach and whatnot. It just yeah. it's such a there's such a connection there that I just I mm. mm-hmm. chef's kiss loved it. Oh, yeah. Like say what you will about some of the things that maybe don't work for people in this movie but the beginning and the ending are fucking like they are so confrontational i Mm. find it's like what kind of movie do you expect this to be well here's what it really is and then also oh did you want to see people thrive and survive well too fucking bad (laughs) i also think that there is sort of like a i i think in a way cronenberg is sort of laughing or pointing a finger and saying is this is this really a bad thing mm-hmm. in a way? Hmm. I mean, he he has an interesting perspective on humanity. His interest always skews towards outsiders and loners and uh, not necessarily people who are working to make the world a better place, although in their minds they might think so. Yeah. We'll see it quite a bit more as we move into some of his 80s features. But okay. I'm not surprised that you say that because... I mentioned earlier, I feel like this movie has a very nihilist streak, but it's also very like anti-bourgeois, like it's it's kind mm. of anti-capitalist, and it's very much like, well, does anyone deserve saving? I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah, and I, I did find this this interesting quote from him where he was talking about natural selection, and he says, I don't think natural selection, as Darwin understood it, is really at work anymore as far as human evolution is concerned. He says, I think something more along the lines of nuclear disaster is perhaps a natural part of our evolution. (laughs) It may be a strange philosophy. I'm not sure. But my instincts seem to suggest that we were meant to tamper with everything and that this will reflect back on us and change us. And I find this quote and I find that in relation to this movie as a way of like, yes, we are going to tamper with things. We're going to fuck around and find out. Mm -hmm. And that is going to evolve us to that next phase, whether that's good or bad or indifferent. Right. And I just so I kind of saw the quote and was like, I think that's kind of what he's establishing in this movie, because I mean, at the end of the day, you know, even the scientists are talking about how, you know, animal is or man is an animal that thinks too much, over rational, Mm -hmm. lost touch with its body and instincts, too much brain, not enough guts. And that the parasite ends up being kind of like a venereal disease that will hopefully turn the world into one big mindless orgy. Like that seems to be kind (laughs) of the the intent here. And I'm like, does Cronenberg see this as a nihilistic ending or does he see this as like the next stage of evolution? 
Well, yeah, it's funny, right? Because we're trained, particularly as horror enthusiasts, to look at this as this is a terrible thing, right? Mm-hmm. Like around the same time in American cinemas, we're getting uh, Invasion of the Body Snatchers. And that's very much like, oh, my God, this is terrible. We're being overtaken by this infection or this plague or this species that makes us lose our individual identities. And you see some of those same themes here in Shivers, except that all of a sudden it's just a loosening of sexual repression. Like, it's very combative it's very aggressive it's not willing to take any prisoners like we see that they basically just co-op everyone and we're not exactly sure what the intentionality is but we default assume that it's a bad thing because these people are being attacked and overtaken and yet at the end of the movie when everyone has been consumed they get in their cars like civil individuals and just drive into the city Right. They're ready to to move on and, and help bring other people into their cult of pleasure, I guess, in a way. Mm-hmm. Well, I also I think one of the most telling pieces, it's almost David Cronenberg telling on himself, is when Forsyth, that's uh, Roger St. Luke's mm-hmm. nurse girlfriend, it always struck me as a very inappropriate relationship. But I don't know, maybe they're just keeping it secret. I'm like, are you fucking your employee? That seems weird. <laughs> Yeah, that was it was very weird, but it also kind of surprised me because it, she seemed to be the one that wanted to initiate things with him, and he's too busy mm-hmm. being a detached scientist. Like he's oh my god, he's a fucking luddite. He's such a dum dum. He is. He's on the phone with <laughs> with Rolo, and he's like talking about this parasite. Whereas she's, she's like a fucking striptease. Like she, hey, yes. why don't you come down the phone and fuck me? <laughs> I mean, she exactly the the only thing she could have done is shove his face in her in her you know crotch. That would have been like the mm-hmm. only other thing to get his attention because at this point he's like has nothing to do with what is happening in front of him. And I'm like, mm-hmm. girl, <laughs> it's too funny. Yeah, it's also funny that um or interesting to me that I was like I was looking at at the actress that played Forsyth and it's like she looks so familiar, and mm-hmm. it's because speaking of um other genre people that are coming up through this time she was also in the crazies uh by george romero okay Mm. and has a cameo in the remake oh interesting okay yeah she's got a very distinctive look to her to the point where i was like like a lot of people in this film to me look french canadian like nicholas to me looks exceedingly french canadian so i was like oh maybe that's just the case it's like Quebec is very much its own thing, and Montreal is a very cosmopolitan city, so sometimes it feels like it's out of time or out of touch with the rest of Canada. Like, they just do Mm. things differently. It's why Quebec literally tried to separate in the 90s and be like, we're our own thing. We speak a different language. We have different priorities. Our entire, like, city structures look completely different. So I, I always have that weird, like, is it different or is it just Quebec? (laughs) (laughs) and see she looked like for me in this movie someone that i would see in a bunch of like italian horror films from that time frame she has that very sharp features of someone Mm -hmm. that i would i would expect to see in um some of the italian movies that i i love from that era which is why i was like why does she look so familiar and then i realized Uh it's because i watched the crazies last year for the first time (laughs) ah okay yeah so so coming back to the the scene i was gonna say where Cronenberg seems to tell on himself. Oh, yeah. She gets this really amazing monologue right before she tries to convert 
Roger. Mm. And she talks about things like old flesh is new flesh, which, of course, if you've seen Videodrome or Crimes of the Future, you're like, holy shit, he's telegraphing those movies really far in advance with this movie from 1975. So we will hear that phrase again. But then she says, even dying is an act of eroticism. Talking and breathing is sexual. And I'm like, that's so poetic and really fascinating. And it feels like the kind of candid conversation that we don't often have because people are just so closed up and closed minded about sex. And I'm thinking back to your comment about like, well, how do we know that this is really a bad thing? Because she's super eloquent and like very in control. And then, yeah, she tries to attack him. But I don't know. Like, she seems liberated in a sense. Absolutely. And I I love I had I had that monologue uh, written down and bolded because it really spoke to me because also what kind of cracked me up is that she gives this whole long speech about you know mm-hmm. uh, how he's old and he smells bad and I find him repulsive, but then he tells me everything is erotic, that everything is mm-hmm. sexual. And she goes through this whole monologue and then a parasite comes out of her mouth and he hits her. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like the response to her very eloquent way of like framing this this parasite as being again this next step in evolution of, of mm-hmm. being free and particularly he like just punches I punches her in the face. <laughs> yeah, he just punches her in the fucking face. <laughs> And I'm like, okay, yeah. I get it. There's a parasite coming out. I'm, I would probably do something too, but it's it's such a funny juxtaposition of mm-hmm. her being like free, free love, man, Basically. and him just like first ignoring her coming on early on in the movie, and now just like hitting her. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It it is fascinating to me as well that a lot of the more sexually aggressive figures that we see in the film are women. And I've always wondered if this is partially in response to, like, the rise of the women's movement, like, mm -hmm. second wave feminism and that kind of stuff. Because Cronenberg does have some issues. You've seen The Brood, so you know that sometimes he does put some gender politics into his film. And sometimes his male scientists, protagonists, are embodiments of himself. Yeah. But... I think it's interesting that, like, of all the people that we know well who become parasite contagious people, almost all of them are women. And then there's Nicholas, and he gets this really intimate moment where he's actually encouraging the parasites living in his stomach. Yes. And he's he's like a proud father, but it's also body horror because the way that it's framed and the way that it's shot and the way we see these organisms moving, he looks pregnant with these slugs okay that's an interesting because like this was a moment where i was like okay this is sexy and surreal what's happening in his in his stomach Mm -hmm. but the language i i think it's it's fascinating that you latched onto like the idea of fatherhood or or motherhood whatever that case may be parenthood Mm -hmm. whereas like I was like, as he's looking down with his like shirt pulled up, I was it almost uh-huh. and he's like saying attaboy yeah. to his bulge. I was like, uh-huh. is he talking to it as if it's like his penis? And he's like, yeah, come on, you know, get hard. Like bit. that is that yeah. is how. So it was like this moment of like, this is really creepy to see these bulges mm-hmm. moving on their stomach. And he is treating them in a very sexual way because he looks both like painful, like mm-hmm. he's in pain. It's pain and pleasure. Yeah, exactly. That that ecstasy kind of a- aspect of it. Mm-hmm. To the point that I was like, this is 
the namesake of our podcast right, right here in one little sequence. Well, and you're not wrong, too, because this is mere moments before his wife Janine comes in and he basically is like, let's have sex. I mm-hmm. want to have sex. And we know as audience members who know that he's infected, that he's just wanting to pass one of these on to her. He wants to infect her. And yet, because of that juxtaposition between how we see him presented here on the bed, talking to it like it's either yeah, a, a child or his dick, and then he's like, <laughs> hey let's make a baby <laughs> just not a baby you want <laughs> right <laughs> oh yeah i think it's interesting also to kind of continuing on with janine the the moment when she goes to bets and in terms of gender politics there's a bit of uh predatory mm-hmm. lesbian going yeah. on here where uh-huh. she's like trying to seduce Janine. So it is looking back on it as from a 2022 lens, you can either look at it as like, ooh, look, there is a little bit of, of queerness in here. But then it's also that aspect that we see time and time again of the the predatory les trying to mm-hmm. convert someone to being a lesbian is what is what it kind of the, the implications behind it, right? Um, and I, yeah. I think it's interesting we have that. And then we also later have two men walking through the hallway. Mm-hmm. Yeah, walking through the hallway, they're all in, they're both in speedos. They don't do anything sexual to each other, but it just oh, they they walk and it's like, sure. "Oh, they're gay." Like that is that is what's going on here. Mhm. Yeah, it was interesting because I couldn't remember if there was any queerness. So like, you know, Brian was doing his usual thing where he was on the other side of the room with his back turned and every once in a while he would pivot and give me this like you're disgusting what are you watching kind of look (laughs) right and then he was like oh it's Cronenberg of course you're watching Cronenberg and he happened to turn around at that scene that I mentioned earlier with the delivery man and what happens after the delivery man attacks the mother and the young girl is that he comes out and there's a man in the hallway that he attacks and he climbs on top of him Mm. and it looks like he might try to kiss him to pass the slug into him And Brian was like, oh, is there like a bit of a queer thing going on? Is that why you're looking at this? And I was like, no, I don't remember any queerness in this film. And I was disappointed because it seemed like that was such an obvious opportunity to do this, right? Like to highlight the fact that there's a sexual liberation that doesn't adhere to traditional heteronormative sexual orientations. And this this delivery then pulls back so that the little girl can pass the slug on. Yeah. And part of me thinks that it's because it's a more controversial choice, right? Like, it's really upsetting watching this probably 11-year-old girl pass a, an STI to an unknown yep. man by kissing him. Like, it's it's uncomfortable and upsetting. But then, yeah, we do get this scene with Betts. We should probably acknowledge that Betts is played by Barbara Steele, who is like the queen of all screen queens, according to Wikipedia. And she's appeared in like a shit ton of very famous older uh, horror films. Black Sunday. Mm-hmm. Pit in the Pendulum, mm-hmm. Horrible Dr. Hitchcock, and so on. I think that Betts is actually one of the most fascinating characters in this movie. And I do really like that scene up until the point where she says, kiss me. Like, I think it's so interesting how she's this gorgeous woman who is also framed as being incredibly lonely because she can't meet a partner. And she's really envious of what Janine and Nicholas have to the point where she's actively dispensing relationship advice because she wants it to work for her so badly. And you're just like, oh, that's, you know, I feel for you so strongly. 
And again, it does feel like Cronenberg is going a bit more for shock value because when the women do kiss, we get that fantastic visual of the bulge in Betz's oh, throat mm-hmm. passing so that it then goes into Janine's throat. And you're like, oh, you didn't even have to show it to us. It's just that practical prosthetic effect. But I'm I'm always dismayed by this. Like, I love their friendship, but I didn't find it sexual. And then it became sexual, but it feels exploitative. Yeah, it, uh, it's one of those moments that feels like a, a, a drive-in moment, right? Where it's like, yeah. it's to titillate, to shock. The boys. Yep, exactly. And it's not to say anything mm-hmm. in terms of like queerness or in terms of... Uh, sexuality in that regard it's just it's there to be either titillating for some and shocking to others be like oh for Mm -hmm. your eyes there are two women kissing like that is that was the implication i got from it which is unfortunate because i agree i did really like bets i thought i thought she was a very interesting and i thought it was it was also pretty cool of uh cronenberg in a movie that was exploitive where she, you know, is disrobing and it cuts to her being in, in the tub and we don't actually mm-hmm. see like that sort yeah. of, you know, striptease type moment. Yeah, you fully think that you're going to get female nudity. You mm-hmm. think you're going to get really like there's no leering of the camera, right? And right. that is something else that will kind of come to discover about Cronenberg is that he almost has an analytical lens. Okay. So there's there's definitely moments of voyeurism, but his films have a tendency to run cool when it Mm. comes to sexuality. Like they're not often trying to turn you on. It's almost by accident. If you are turned on. That makes sense. Maybe the exception of this one. And then the next one that we're going to watch, which is rabid where he literally casts a famous porn star as his lead actress. But that movie has much more interesting things to say. So we will get there. Yeah, I do want to quickly circle back to the the two gay men, though, because I okay. think that that's almost more successful in its casual laissez-faire approach. Like, you could just infer that these are two men who happen to be in their underwear and they're patrolling right. the halls looking for new victims. But I think for, like, you and I, the gaydar pings, oh. and we're just mm-hmm. like, okay, I understand what's going on here. The movie doesn't need to over-explain it, and it doesn't render them different in any regard, except for the fact that they are mostly disrobed. But at this point, it's also the middle of the night, so hypothetically, they could have been ready to get to bed, they could have been having sex, they could have been doing any number of things, but I like that the movie is like, yeah, here's a gay couple, and we're moving on. Yeah, absolutely. Same. Um, Because, again, we're also at the time of of the movie where, you know, the parasite has spread across it. So it it doesn't differentiate them from anyone else that is roaming the hallways looking to hook up and and spread the the parasite onward. So I I thought that that was um, a surprising moment of, of progressiveness in it because it doesn't it doesn't shame them. It doesn't other them. It doesn't do anything that is is made to shock people. It's just two men in speedos or underwear i'm not mm-hmm. really sure which that uh are roaming the halls just like everyone else and i yeah yeah i so i i did i did like that moment so i've got a couple of favorite scenes i find this movie effective but not necessarily scary in the way that other 
pathogen contagion kind of films where there's like this overwhelming fear that you will not be able to get away from it. Like I don't always feel that in this. Again, I think because it's a little almost analytical, it's more like a nature documentary in some ways. <laughs> yeah. But there are two big scenes that I find incredibly disturbing. And then the pool sequence, which I feel like merits its own lengthy discussion. I really like the scene where you mentioned, is it Merrick is the guy who shows people around? Merrick, mm-hmm. I love that scene where you think it's being played for comedy because the whole building is falling to shit. People are getting infected all over the place. And he's just casually showing to prospective buyers like, hey, yeah, you could move in later on and so on. And it's a different couple than the, the ones that we saw earlier. And then he lets them into what looks like a children's playroom. Yes. And these people are just like fucking and sucking and doing weird <laughs> shit. And then they just turn and look at this couple and he closes the door and locks it. And you realize, oh, these people have a certain capacity to play like they are real normal people. And then as soon as they have locked this couple into the room, they attack them. Yep. I just think it's so good. It's such a great, great scene because I... Again, it, it plays with expectations because I honestly mm-hmm. thought, again, it was a callback to the original where Merrick is just, yeah. the world's going to hell around him, but he is going to sell an apartment. Yeah, and- he's fucking <laughs> obtuse. He's like, I just got to sell these apartments today. He's <laughs> he's American. Uh, shit. I was like, he's American pieing it. No, he's not fucking a pie. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we got to keep that in, though. Oh my god now i do <laughs> no i but yeah so i was like i was like oh this is funny because again it, it the satire of the the person that is trying to mm-hmm. make money even when the world is going to hell and it's yes. funny but the no no the he no. is he is converting them and i was and i yeah. i laughed twice at that because it's it's was such a reversal of my expectations and i love it when movies do that mm-hmm and then one movie that I I don't know that there's anything more to it except for the fact that it's just very scary is when Roger St. Luke and Forsyth are. So she's been infected. She's dazed because they've gotten into a car accident at this oh. point. And he is bringing her down a very narrow hallway. It looks like a storage locker kind of line. And there's slatted uh, walls on either side. And as they're making their way down this narrow compartment, all of these arms just start Mm. bursting through and grabbing them. And he actually loses foresight in this moment. And she gets attacked and like seemingly sexually assaulted, even though she's already affected. And he straight up fucking abandons her. But I was like, oh, wow, this feels like we are doing a night of the living dead home exactly mm-hmm. and it's really good too it is really good it was definitely giving me the again talking about george romero the night of the living dead feels with mm-hmm. though because it's wood and they're breaking through and all and all yeah. that aspect of it and then we also get to the pool scene which i definitely want to dig into a little bit more but when when he leaves and people start coming down the hill they oh look like romero zombies yeah so they do mm-hmm I, I think it's it's I think it's an obvious homage to to Romero in this case. Mm-hmm. I love this pool sequence. I saw on Twitter. I just think it is fucking genius. Like it's so simple in certain regards, right? Like mm-hmm. Roger is our final boy. He is trying to escape. 
he is being lured into the pool by Betts and Janine like fucking sirens calling Mm. him to his death. Mm. He resists and then he tries to make it over this embarkment and then we just see people backlit coming over. It's a wall of people and they're like rushing but they're not running and it makes it way more terrifying and then he gets pulled into this pool and it is it's an orgy of parasites but i love the way that cronenberg frames forsyth in her see-through water top she's otherworldly and ethereal and like so stunningly beautiful and dangerous all at once and to watch her then grab onto him and kiss him and him relinquish like he accepts it in glorious slow-mo slow motion yes i just i die every time i watch it i forget how good it is until i'm watching it and it's all in a pool right like so it's so it's so interestingly staged yes i i I, you nailed it i don't know what else to say i love (laughs) i did love that that sequence uh just the the way the way you think he's going to escape and the way that yeah. there's like a wall of people and they, he's forced back into this building where mm-hmm. everything is going down. And and you think like he's going to shut the door and maybe he'll mm. keep them out. He might battle and he doesn't. He just fucking gives up. He's standing by the pool and they grab his leg and he just is like, I see no way of getting mm-hmm. out of this. There is no exit. I'm going to have to be assimilated is basically yeah. what happens. Mm hmm. But weirdly, it doesn't feel bad in that moment. Feels triumphant. Like it's, it's horrifying, but it's also like, okay, well, now you're one of us. And yeah, there's there's a certain dread in then watching this ending where, yeah, like they just drive off to go and infect seemingly the rest of the city. But you and I love a kind of mean, cruel ending. Mm-hmm. And this feels chef's kiss perfect. It's a great ending. I was not sure where this movie was going to go mm-hmm. in terms of 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 an ending and it's nihilistic mm-hmm. or it's triumphant depending on how yep. you look at it from uh-huh. which perspective. Uh but it's a uh, it's just that kind of perfect ending, you know, where yeah. It's like they just start to come out of the the building and they're moving on and everyone's happy and it's like, mm-hmm. yeah, this is this is the this is an ending. This is an ending. Yeah. yeah. It is a hell of an ending. Mm-hmm. So that shivers. Ooh, <laughs> what a hell of a pair of debuts, right? Like I mean, Lynch sure. and Cronenberg just fucking nail it right out of the gates. Absolutely, I'm so excited. Watching these two movies made me even more excited for this journey that we're going to go on because I feel as if they both have established kind of what we're going to expect in some ways. Mm-hmm. from their career at least at least in part and what a i don't know what a what a perfect calling card for both of them for the illustrious careers that they end up having mm, yeah i will confess i'm actually very excited because our next episode we're going to shift back to lynch and we're going to watch a movie that i've never seen before Ooh. so we're both going to go into this cold because I've always resisted the Elephant Man because I was like, well, it's not like proper Lynch. It's not like the good Lynch, even though obviously it's highly celebrated. Once again, it's a Criterion release. It, yeah, I was just like, no, it just seems sad. I don't know that I want to watch that. <laughs> but now I'm like, OK, well, you are going to watch it. So buckle up. Buckle up. Yeah, I'm 
I'm very curious about this because I've I've seen, of course, photos. I've seen. Mm-hmm. Um, I know what kind of what it's about, but I don't know. This one isn't one that initially grabbed my attention in terms of like a movie right. that I need to watch. Does that make sense? No. Yeah, I literally feel exactly the same way. Where I was like, I'm sure it's good. I've seen tons of praise for it. I think it's even maybe an Oscar nominated or Oscar winning film for like makeup. And yet, yeah, it's never really been one that I felt a driving urge to see. So, I mean, that's one of the joys of doing podcasts, right? You're kind of like, okay, well, now you got to watch it. So you might as well just settle in. Hell yeah. And I'm excited (laughs) for all two hours and four minutes of it. Oh, my God. Okay. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh Terry, if folks want to get a hold of you to talk about maybe this was their first time watching Shivers, how would they get a hold of you? Uh, you will find me on most social media at Gaily Dreadful. And Joe, if people want to gush more about the slow mo uh, pool uh, sequence, where please. can they find you? <laughs> you can reach me at a B Stole My Remote, and that's the letter B. And thanks, as always, to the Anatomy of a Scream Pod Squad Network for hosting the show. So, yes, uh, Sexy and Surreal will return with, I don't know, maybe no sexier surreal with the <laughs> Elephant Man. I mean, it has, you know, it has uh, Anthony Hopkins in it so and John Hurt. So there's our sex, right? This is true. Okay. <laughs> well, in, in Anthony, we trust. <laughs> Anatomy of a Scream, Pod Squad.